following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. I've told you before that one of my part-time jobs right out of college was selling shoes. I worked at a running store. It was a running and soccer store, and I was horrible at my job. I was just terrible. Like, I am a horrible salesman. Um, I didn't care about the soccer side of things because I'm not a soccer guy, uh, and I didn't feel like selling people stuff they didn't need on the running side, and so I just didn't sell a lot of stuff. Like, I was terrible. And I've told you all of that before, but I don't know if I've ever told you why, why that was such a struggle for me. And here's what it came down to. I got this job at this running store because I was training for, for marathons, and I used to go through shoes like in a month, I would wear out a pair of shoes. So by working at the running store, I got a bunch of free shoes and a huge discount on all the rest of my shoes that I bought. So I worked for the free shoes and the discount, but I didn't care a single bit about my job. Like I would work one day a week and somebody would be like, oh, I need a few more hours. I'd be like, here, you can have mine. Like I didn't, I didn't wanna be there. So when I was there, I worked and I did what I could. But if I'm honest, I had no passion for it. I didn't like it. I would show up, I would put in my hours, and I would leave. My whole time spent there was just me going through the motions. When we consider the Christmas season, we understand that there's there's a lot of joy in a lot of the activities of this time of the year. There are traditions, there are gatherings, there are celebrations but there are always times, even if, even if just for a, a moment, when we can find ourselves simply going through the motions of Christmas. You ever been there? Maybe you deal with some family anxiety about that gathering that's going to happen, that specific sibling or aunt or uncle or parent who's going to be coming to your Christmas dinner, and it fills you with anxiety. Maybe you deal with the grief of a Christmas without someone you love and care for. Or maybe it's just the distractions of everything else going on. You're like, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to go here, and I got to get that done. And you don't even think about what you're doing. You're just rattling off that checklist one after the other. There are so many things that can get us to just going through the motions of the Christmas season. But if we're going to simplify, as we have been talking about through this series, if we're going to simplify our Christmas and bring purpose and meaning to every thought, every word, every deed, and every activity of this season, then we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves a question. The question of how do I move beyond mere participation so that every moment of this season is a preparation for the worship of Jesus Christ in my heart? How do I prepare myself so that everything that happens over the next couple of weeks is not just me going through the motions, participating, showing up, being there, and moving on to the next thing? If we're gonna prepare our hearts for worship this Christmas, then we're gonna need to keep three reminders in place. And the first is this. If we are going to have hearts of worship to be prepared for worship, 
then we start by acknowledging God's grace. We acknowledge God's grace. Psalm 147, um, and we're going to look at verse 11. I want to focus on verse 11, but I, I, I want to start in verse 7 and, and give you a little, uh, a little context to this verse. It says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Play the lyre to God who covers the sky and the clouds, prepares the rain for the earth, and causes grass to grow in the hills. He provides the animals with their food and the young ravens what they cry for. Okay, so what the psalmist is doing here in these couple of verses, he says, listen, God is in control. Worship him. Why? Because he is God. You are not. He is in control. Don't miss that. Don't think anything else. Just know that God is in control. And then verse 10, it says, he's not impressed by the strength of a horse. He does not value the power of a warrior. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. And Psalm says, God is, is God. He is in control. He is the authority. But understand that his joy is not in our strength. We is his creation. God's joy is not in our strength. God's joy is in our weakness. Not because we are weak, but because only by knowing our weakness are we able to fully glorify the immense love, grace, mercy, and power of God. Right? If I, if I think I have power, if I think I have strength, if I think I have something to offer, then what I do is I make God's grace, God's glory so much less. But when I recognize how weak, how frail, how insignificant I am, his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his authority, all of that becomes greater. And the psalmist says here that God's value, right? Maybe your translation says his favor or his pleasure rests not in the strength of the animal or the, the power of the warrior. Some of, your, some of your translations there say the strength of the runner. It's not about what we bring to the table. He says, no, his value, his favor, his pleasure rests in those who fear him. Now, whenever we talk about the fear of God, it's an, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing to talk about, isn't it? Because to fear God really has a couple, of, a couple of meanings working together. First, to fear God means that we have a reverential awe. We're struck by the, the matchless power, majesty, and authority of God. Right? We look at him, we're like, holy cow. Maybe not holy cow, maybe that's sacrilegious in that context, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Holy moly, crikeys, I don't know what you want me to go with there. There's just an amazement at who God is. We see him and we're just blown away. That's a, that's a fear of the Lord. But when we talk about fear of the Lord, there's another aspect. And I've said many times that fear of the Lord means we're not being afraid. And I think I was wrong to say that. As I've thought about this more and more and more and studied this more and more, I think the fear of the Lord carries some fear, some actual fear, like we are afraid. Why? Not because God's scary, but because a fear of the Lord means that we know how unworthy we are of him. And we know that in his holiness and his goodness, he has every right to cast us aside and leave us behind, right? The very best that I can do for God means he should reject me. That should make me a little bit afraid, right? 
Like, wait a second, if I bring my very best to God, he should, by all measure of my merit, just push me aside and be like, get out of here. You don't deserve my presence. It's a fear of myself. That fear of the Lord is that fear of knowing how he should cast me aside if it were not for his grace. If it were not for his grace, if it were not for the fact that our trust is not in ourselves, our strength, our power, our intelligence, our anything else, it is in his, what his steadfast love. The psalmist says it's in his steadfast love. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It's the word chesed. It's my favorite Hebrew word because it, that, that steadfast or loyal love is an incredible thing to think about, but also because it's fun to say. Chesed. It's this incredible word that shows up over and over and over and over and over again in the Psalms. This loyal, enduring, unending, amazing, mind-blowing love of God. God's pleasure is when we understand who we are and recognize the depth of his grace and we are just blown away. A couple of years ago, I was in a uh, coffee shop in the Quad Cities. And I had gone away to, to do some writing and I'm, I'm sitting there and this guy walks in and I looked at him like, man, he looks familiar. So I texted Aaron. I said, hey, Aaron, there's this guy here. He looks exactly like, the guy's name is Josh Ritter. He's a songwriter, a musician. He's one of my favorite songwriters. I'm like, Aaron, there's this guy here who looks exactly like Josh Ritter. She's like, what would Josh Ritter be doing there? I'm like, I, I know. I'm just saying he looks like him. And then in the next moment, this other guy walks up and walks in. And this guy looks distinct. He was tall, really thin, wore a cowboy hat, had the little wireframe glasses and had the, the mustache, you know, that curls at the end, which is exactly what Josh Ritter's bass player looks like. And so I'm like, Aaron, it, it is him. It's got to be. Right, and I'm sitting there, and he walks over, and he's got his coffee, and he was putting milkers. I don't know what he was doing, something to his coffee. And I'm like, uh, are you Josh Ritter? He's like, yeah. And so, so I had this conversation with him. But the point is this. I'm sitting in Starbucks, and this guy walks in who shouldn't have been there. And it caught me totally by surprise. Right, if I'd gone to one of his concerts, and he walks out on stage, I wouldn't have been shocked at all. I'd been like, yep, that's Josh Ritter. <laughs> but he was somewhere I didn't expect him, somewhere I didn't think he would be or that he should be. Grasping a sense of God's grace is kind of like that. When we truly understand God's grace and we look at it, there should be a part of us that's like, what are you doing here? Why are you poured out on me? Why do you love me? Why have you cared for me? Right, if I truly understand that, it should just blow me away to where I can almost not even comprehend it. See, far too often, the longer we walk faithfully with the Lord, we will be tempted to lose our grasp on God's grace. We'll do the right things. We'll hold the right theological points. We'll avoid the really bad sins that those people do. And we start to deceive ourselves and think, you know, I'm getting kind of good. I mean, I'm not arrogant enough to say I'm, I'm good enough for God, but I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? Our heart only has that firm grasp 
on the gospel when it has a firm grasp on our own depravity, our own weakness. It's in that that we're able to take a joyful understanding of God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes in verses one through five, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ, though we were dead in our trespasses. You were saved by grace. Paul says there's nothing you've got that's worthy of God. It is only God's grace that brings salvation, right? It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have memorized. It doesn't matter how many sermons you've preached. It doesn't matter how happy your family seems. It doesn't matter how successful your business is. God's grace is the only means of redemption. Paul continues this thought in verse eight and nine of Ephesians two, where he says, for you're saved by grace through faith. And it is not of yourself. It is a gift from God not from work so that no one can boast. What Paul is saying there is it's, right, we talk sometimes about saving faith, right? There's a conversation to be had there, but the reality is your faith doesn't save you. You realize that? Your faith does not save you. God's grace saves you. Your faith allows you to grasp that gift that God has offered you. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not that you are saved by faith. You, you trusted in the right thing and so you're saved. No, because if God didn't offer his grace, it doesn't matter what you trust in. It is only because God has offered his grace that our faith has any value. We must acknowledge first and foremost, above everything else, God's grace. Because if we don't, then we're fooling ourselves into thinking we follow God, we trust God. Because our trust is in ourselves. We must understand our depravity and God's grace. Listen, do we rejoice in every moment and every activity of our lives in the grace that God has given us? When we acknowledge God's grace, our hearts are then free to grasp the second reminder. When we recognize Jesus' sacrifice, we recognize Jesus' sacrifice. If you turn over to the book of John, John chapter, uh, chapter 3. And John chapter 3 is, um, you'll recognize, of course, verse 16 of John chapter 3, most famous verse in the Bible, but it comes out of this conversation that Jesus is having. And the whole conversation is absolutely amazing. And leading up to, to the verse we're going to look at in John uh, chapter 3, verse 13, uh, Jesus has, has told this religious leader, says, listen, if you want to be saved, if you want to know the power of God, you must be born again. Which again, take yourselves out of out of our context where we grew up knowing about being born again, right? Being born again sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? You need to be born again. 
wait, what? Nope. I don't remember the first one, but I don't think I want to do it again. <laughs> so Jesus tells him this, and the guy's like, I don't, what are you talking about? In verse 11 through 13, Jesus says, truly I tell you, we speak what we know, we testify what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? In verse 13, he says this, no one has ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Okay, there's a lot in verse 13. But let me read this again. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Okay, if you ever run into somebody who says, Jesus never said he was God. Right, you'll, you'll hear a lot of atheistic arguments or people who are like, well, the Bible is whatever, right? And they'll go, well, Jesus never claimed he was God. You can take them to this verse. This is one of many verses in the New Testament where you can take them to and go, yes, he did. Jesus absolutely said he is God here, right? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And the son of man here is a code word. The Jewish audience would have immediately recognized what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. It goes back to, to the book of Daniel, chapter seven, verse 13 and 14, where it says, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. The ancient of days is God the father. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Daniel's given us a picture of the coming of the Messiah and says one, like the son of man, will rule forever and ever and ever. Jesus says, I am coming like the son of man. He says, I am God. You read about me in the Old Testament. I'm coming to bring God's glory, God's reign forever and ever. What Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus is that, that he is the perfect, holy God incarnate, right? Incarnate meaning come in the flesh. He came to earth in human flesh so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you and me. So his sacrifice was flesh for our flesh to complete the requirements of the law. God laid down the law. He said, you want to be saved? Here's what you have to do. And throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites show God that they can't do it and show us that we couldn't do it either. So Jesus comes in the flesh to live that perfectly so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice. His flesh and blood to pay the penalty of our flesh and blood. I remember being at a, a rest stop one time and uh, this was when I was coaching and, and we were having a late night drive through the night to get back home. And we got to this rest stop and I was like, man, I need a candy bar. And so I go to the vending machine and, and I had some, some coins in my pocket and I picked them out and I start putting the coins in, right? And the, the, the total starts going up and I, the last coin I drop in and it shot right back down to the bottom. You ever have that happen? Right? And so I grabbed the coin, I'm like, man, what? So I put it in, shoots right back down to the bottom. What is going on with this coin? So I pick it up one more time and I put it back in like that's gonna help somehow. But I do it a third time and it shoots right back down to the bottom and I pick it up and I kind of move over to the light and I look at it. And what I found was it's not a quarter. It's a Canadian coin. 
Somehow a Canadian coin had gotten mixed in with the change that I got somewhere, and now I couldn't buy something from the vending machine because I had this Canadian coin. Right? You need U.S. currency to buy U.S. goods. And in the same way, you and I need a flesh and blood payment to cover the cost of our sinful flesh and blood. And it's through Jesus' sacrifice the sacrifice of his life in place of ours, dying a death that he didn't deserve, but that we do. Through that, that the mechanism of grace swung fully into motion. And that sacrifice on the cross had its beginning in the manger. For to slow down and, and find meaning beyond participation this Christmas, we must see at every moment, the ultimate purpose of the birth of Jesus. And that is to usher in the king who would die for his people. Again, Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. The manger is not about a birth. The manger is about a king. Because the manger leads to the cross. And the cross leads to a tomb. And the tomb leads to an empty tomb. And the empty tomb leads to the throne of heaven. So when we go to those Christmas programs this year, when we, we go to the school and watch our kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, children of, of friends, when we watch them, yeah, it's, it's cute and all. But look around. Look around and see the faces of so many people that need to grasp a hold of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ to know the grace of God. When we go shopping and we go out to dinner, take a moment survey the, the massive crowds, and maybe for just a moment, stop being frustrated. I'm preaching to myself here. Stop being frustrated at the crowds and see those Jesus came to seek and to save. When we attend an office or, or, or neighborhood or family Christmas gathering, we should look at the faces of those we, we love and see the faces of those whose penalty has been offered up to be paid for by the blood of the child in the manger. We recognize Jesus' sacrifice to rejoice in God's grace and to grow in compassion for those around us. Are we amazed at Jesus' sacrifice are we amazed at Jesus' sacrifice to the degree that it changes our, our vision, our outlook on every situation and every person that God puts around us this Christmas season? With a firm hold on God's grace through Jesus' sacrifice, we continue to pray, prepare our hearts to worship in every moment. And we prepare to worship then with this third reminder that we realize the Spirit's comfort. We realize 
the Spirit's comfort. We stay in the, the book of John, jump ahead to, to verse uh, chapter 15. Verse 26 and, and 27. Jesus says, when the counselor comes, and the, the counselor here is the Holy Spirit, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. This verse, these two verses really give us a great look at the Holy Spirit's purpose his work. And this is really important for us as a church, especially in today's culture. Because you, you and I are surrounded by those who look at the Holy Spirit and try to take him out of the context of the New Testament and out of the context of the teachings of Jesus and make him be what they want him to be. The Holy Spirit is not here to make you and I feel powerful. The Holy Spirit is not here to be an external display of our spiritual power, right? And this is a, a really common twisting of the Holy Spirit's power in, in our culture. If you really have the Holy Spirit, you'll look like this. If you really trust the Holy Spirit, you would do this. That's not what the Holy Spirit came to do. That's not what God sent him to do. The holy, <laughs> Jesus' purpose was to point us back to the Father. The Holy Spirit's work is to point us to Jesus. Now, we can talk about the specific ways in which that happens. Uh, we're, we're, we're <laughs> when we talk about what the Holy Spirit does, how he works, that's a bigger conversation. Okay, but his purpose is to point us to Jesus. That encapsulates his purpose. And what that means for us is that we don't have anything to prove with our lives, with our work, or with our worship. Because it's not our lives, our work, or our worship that actually points us to Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit's work in us and through us. Yes, that plays out in our lives, in our work, in our worship. But the Holy Spirit's indwelling in our lives is the only proof that is necessary to prove that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. That means that we can rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the comfort he provides as we worship the incarnate God. It is the Holy Spirit speaking to us, guiding us, leading us, equipping us to have an understanding of Jesus' sacrifice and God's grace. There is no intellectual pursuit that can get you there. I could show you a lot of people. We could talk to a lot of people. We could talk to a lot of atheists who know more about their Bibles than you and I do. That intellectual knowledge means nothing without a submission and a surrender to God, which brings the Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our lives. And listen, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling me, here's the deal. I have nothing to prove to any one of you. 
You have nothing to prove to me. The question is, do I rely on the Holy Spirit to guide me, to direct me, to point me to Christ? Yeah, we need each other in that journey (laughs) because the Holy Spirit will work through us to help one another. But the reality is, if I'm relying on what I can prove to you or what you can prove to me in order to feel like, yes, I'm saved and I'm good with God, you're never gonna get there. It's never gonna happen. We rest in the comfort that the Holy Spirit provides when he guides us to our worship of the incarnate God. Practically speaking, as we march towards Christmas, this is where we plant our feet in the celebration of the birth of Jesus. We see our need for God's grace and our redemption through Jesus' sacrifice. And those truths allow us to rest in the comfort that comes only through his Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's work will remind us of who we are in God's family through Jesus Christ, the king in the manger whose victory was greater than anyone could have ever imagined. We go back to Matthew 20, what we read earlier this morning. And we remember Jesus' followers and his disciples expected some kind of military or political rule and reign and authority. They wanted to be back in power. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, I'm bringing all kinds of power. But it's a greater power than any political leader or social reformist or anybody else can bring. Jesus says, I came to live a perfect life. That life God called you to live, but you all failed at. So that I could be nailed to a tree bleed and suffer and die, paying the penalty for sin, a sin that he never committed. So he could be laid in a tomb, raised on the third day, overcoming sin and overcoming death once and for all. So that he could ascend to the right hand of the Father as our high priest, our advocate, the one that when we stand before judgment, and make no mistake, every single one of us, whether you've committed your life to Jesus Christ or not, you will stand in judgment before the Lord. The question is whether that judgment will be made against your life or the life of Jesus Christ. I know which one I want to be judged against, and it ain't my life. See, there's no greater comfort during the Christmas season or any other time of the year than the comfort of being filled by the Holy Spirit in the certainty of God's love through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign. A reign over our hearts and over all of creation. In this Christmas season, do we seek our comfort in the results of our work or in the completion of Jesus? There are times in our lives where we'll all find ourselves on autopilot. And that can be okay. 
There are, there are times where that's okay. It's like using cruise control on a long road trip. Nothing wrong with that. But autopilot carries a danger too. It can lead us into a sense of mindlessness. It can lull us into just going through the motions. And when it comes to the worship of our hearts, just going through the motions is not good enough and it will never be good enough because it always fails to glorify and honor the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we continue to march to this Christmas season, as we continue to engage in the the traditions around us, as we continue to celebrate or grieve or push or praise our way through the weeks ahead. Whatever it is, we must keep our hearts in a state of preparation. To do so, we have to acknowledge the overwhelming grace of God, recognize the depth of Christ's sacrifice, and realize the magnitude of the Spirit's comfort and rest in our lives. Church family, let us not lose focus in the activities and and busyness and sometimes chaos of Christmas. But may we be a people whose hearts are constantly ready to worship the King and to rejoice in the birth of a Savior whose work on the cross would make a way for the empty tomb and the eternal reign. By this, may we display the redemption of the glorious light of the world into the darkness of the culture around us. May we be prepared to worship. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you. As always, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are God and we are not. We thank you that you have loved us in ways that make no earthly sense. We thank you because we understand that we are wholly undeserving of your grace and your mercy. We repent of our sins. We repent of the ways we allow this life, this world, the distractions of pain and suffering, the distraction of the pretty things, the distractions of whatever it is that has drawn our hearts and that continues to draw our hearts away from you. We repent and we come back to you. We come back to you remembering that it is only by your grace that we might be saved. A grace offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A a grace that is guided to by the Holy Spirit. a grace that we have no words for besides thank you. And fathers, we come back to you. We celebrate the joy and the hope that we have in the, in the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection and the eternal reign Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you.
In your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.